As Latter-day Saint leaders, we face very difficult conversations that put us at risk of saying the wrong thing that can do more harm than good. Many of these conversations relate to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Have you had a fellow board member come out to you about their LGBT identity? Have you had LGBT neighbors and you just don't know what to say to them, so you ignore them instead? Have you wrestled with balancing love for your fellow men while still respecting the doctrines of the restored gospel? In order to help, Leading Saints has put together the LGBT Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of the most popular sessions are available now to watch. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now, or visit leadingsaints.org LGBT. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, like this podcast, which we hope you subscribe to. We also have a website at leadingsaints.org with thousands of incredible articles all about leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. We host virtual summits, live events, and also have a weekly newsletter to keep you up to date on all things happening with Leading Saints. Visit leadingsaints.org for more information. All right, today I'm connecting with uh, Kevin Tolley. Did I say your name right, Kevin? That's right. Opposite of Shorty. Okay. Nice. <laughs> You're Tolley, not Shorty, yeah, huh? That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> now, you are one of my Education Week finds. You know, I go to Education Week at BYU, and if you don't know what Education Week is, you're probably under 40, but it's fantastic. And uh, basically, the campus is available for a week, and so they invite people to come. You can buy a ticket and listen to smart guys like Kevin or BYU professors, religion professors, psychologists, and financial planners. I mean, sometimes they, they, there's some very interesting topics. So I went to Education Week. Unfortunately, I did not attend your sessions, Kevin. I, I regret it now, but my brother kept raving about the sessions he was uh, attending. And so I tracked you down and said, you got to do an interview with me. So, I mean, how, how did you end up at Education Week? And maybe give us some of your background of what you do. Yeah. I work for the church. I'm an institute director based down in uh, Riverside, California. I've worked for the church for about 20 years teaching various topics. This is where this idea kind of sprang out. It was, it was a seminary lesson that just got out of control 20 years ago, <laughs> where we started studying the calls and the releases of, of all members of the Quorum of the Twelve. And so over the years, I started compiling some of these things with a colleague of mine named Patrick Bishop, and, uh, and we, we, we put together these stories. And then Education Week just seemed like a great venue to be able to share. It's a great venue to be able to share ideas and concepts and, and see, see if anything sticks. So, <laughs> Yeah. And the typical model of Education Week is basically you have four, four sessions over four days, and it's about an hour-ish each session. And then you sort of unpack these things as, as the week goes along, right? Yeah. Um, so did, you, did they approach you about being part of Education Week or did you apply and, and get in? You know, I, I, I applied, I think, years ago. And so every few years, like, I, I, I pop this out and I says, ah, let's give this another whirl. And, and sometimes I'll, I'll switch other, other topics. My background is really not in church history or American history. I have a PhD in Hebrew Bible. I studied at Notre Dame, I studied theology, undergrad in ancient Near Eastern studies. And so ancient world is where I've usually felt really comfortable. But how can you not be attracted to this idea of a quorum of the 12 apostles? And, and this concept stretches through, through 
Old Testament, New Testament, and and we see some of these ideas, but getting to know uh, real life prophets, apostles, and and to come to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and see what their lives were like has just been a fascinating journey. So yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm excited to jump into it. Yeah, yeah. The as far as education, we one of the challenges is we're covering the lives of 102 apostles, uh, members of the Quorum of the Twelve, and uh, they give you four days, four hours to cover was 190 years of history. And, <laughs> and so in that venue, I'm usually talking really fast, trying to get through fascinating characters. And we know people like, you know, Joseph and Hiram and Oliver, and those, those names just roll off the tongue. But later in church history, there are just fascinating individuals that uh, Alonzo Hinckley, you know, member of the Quorum of the Twelve, who, who uh, has just a really neat story. Uh, just characters that we, that we just aren't familiar with that have lessons uh, we can learn from. So, yeah, that's awesome. And I love this concept of succession because obviously, you know, we have a deep history in, you know, our general authorities and the Quorum of the Twelve and, you know, especially, you know, every decade or so when the Pope dies and they call a new Pope, it's sort of interesting to see their method as everybody watches for the smoke, you know, come up over the the Vatican and, and whatnot. And it's sort of comforting to know like, well, yeah, if President Nelson dies, you know, it's President Oaks, he's up, you know, and and there's obviously a, a really a, a method and and it's it's helpful and comforting to s- sort of have that system in place rather than maybe the politicking that can happen behind the scenes, which you sort of hear about uh, with all the cardinals and whatnot. But but then even the succession that we have in our own local wards and, and stakes where people are called and how are those calls extended and and what does it mean? And and what about those, you know, I had this feeling that I was going to be the next bishop, but then I wasn't, or I had this feeling I was going to be the next stake president and I was, right? And there's so so many of these nuances in, in the lives of leaders that happen. And so I think it'd be fun to explore some history and, and learn from, from their experiences. So where should we begin with all this, Kevin? You know, I think starting in the in the very beginning might might be the best. Um, Perfect. You know, even as you're talking just now, it makes me it just brings stories to my mind about various individuals who experienced some of the same things that, that you just mentioned. About mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be called and I wasn't, or I was called and and I don't know if I'll ever be ready for that call. You know, even though it's yeah. in, in the rearview mirror. But back in 1829, when when Joseph Smith sat down uh, with the three witnesses. Uh, we have this from Section 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants, how they 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 begin to pray, and uh, some of our artwork doesn't really depict what really took place. One piece of art depicts uh, Moroni showing a, a set of plates to to Joseph and and Oliver and David. Later, David says that uh, Martin Harris, excuse me, that uh, Moroni brought a table, you know, and it was like show and tell. Oh, as part of this visionary experience, he brings out the gold plates and brass plates and sort of Laban and other things like that. But as recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants, the three witnesses were challenged at that point to seek out the 12. As early as possibly 1829, that, that the, the three witnesses were asked to go find these individuals. And, and I thought, what would it be like to be uh, one of the three witnesses in at least this one aspect, this one assignment? How do you go through and find somebody who would fill these legendary shoes, the legendary shoes of Peter and James and John and, 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 and do this? And as converts came into the church, this was a challenge that they have. They had they took about six years for them to go through and get to a point where Joseph gave them the green light and says, we're going to extend the call to the Quorum of the Twelve. Joseph Smith Sr. said of his son, Joseph Smith Jr., that Joseph was charged to find men who believed in the supernatural, you know, that 
that wow. this was uh, not only a testimony of the Savior, but this was a testimony that God still works, that miracles occur. And I think as far as I'm able to determine, there were very many other requirements in the very beginning. There was a belief that you needed to have, a belief that God worked and, and that miracles were real. And so it was not for a number of years that the, until the Quorum of the Twelve would be organized. Joseph would stand up in a meeting and, and say, and, and it was February 14th, 1835, where Joseph said, all right, Oliver, David, Martin, your time's up. Six years is up. Like, get, it's time to choose the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And they would go out and determine from the audience who these individuals were. The issue was only three of the 12 were at, at that meeting. So it made it even more challenging. You know, as they went out, they each cho chose one individual. And over the next uh, few months, a series of meetings would be held until they got up to number nine. And then missionaries came back off of their mission and, and were called immediately to serve as members of the 12. And so you can see, like, in, in the very beginning, like I said, I'm not sure exactly what was their, their thought process. How they, how they chose members of the 12, other than by saying it was through inspiration. After each individual was chosen, Joseph would tell them that they chose correctly. And so that, that'd be a little nerve wracking, you know, as, uh, as like David Whitmer goes out and taps Brigham Young on the shoulder and says, you're the man, you know, and Joseph goes, yep, you're right. You know? Martin Harris goes out and taps on Heber C. Kimball and says, uh, and Joseph goes, correct. And I, I just wonder how, how nerve-wracking that would be to go out there and try to determine you're the one and the person with keys is standing right behind me, making sure that my inspiration is correct. Yeah. And I, I think that, I think that follows a, a, a model of today where the, from what I understand, I mean, the president of the church is the one who makes the call on the next apostle. I'm sure they sit in council and maybe discuss names. I would, I would assume like maybe a lot of bishopric meetings and whatnot, but at the end of the day, it comes to the president of the church who says, this is who we're calling and everybody sustains, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, there's, and, and, and multiple models have been used as we go back and, and mm. study. Like you say, there, there's been times where the president of the church just walked in the room and says, here's the man, a sustaining vote, you know, and, 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 that's, and that's all the warning that the Quorum of the Twelve had for, for filling a vacancy. But there's been other times where, where they've counseled, they've discussed it, they've submitted names. And you're right, the final word goes to, the, to that individual who sits as president of the church. If I could jump ahead in church history really quick, Heber J. Grant walked yeah. into a meeting. There was a vacancy that needed to be filled and felt very strongly that a boyhead friend should, should fill that vacancy. Someone he's known for years and years and years, has been tested and tried, had served as an army general for a time, served as a stake president, served as a completely qualified. He walked in the room and with the Quorum of the Twelve to present this name, and he heard a very distinct voice, Melvin J. Ballard. And he thought to himself, I don't even know this guy. You know, I, 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 he knew him, but not really, not like the boyhood friend, you know, <laughs> the, the friend from, from decades gone by. And, and he, you know, he thought for a second, and he heard the voice again, Melvin J. Ballard. So he crumpled up the name, the piece of paper with the name of his friend on it. And he said, uh, the name I propose is Melvin J. Ballard. I think of that story, if you just go back and maybe I'm jumping in time already, but uh, do you remember they had to fill the vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve after, the, after Judas left the Quorum through yeah, death? To uh, say the least. <laughs> I don't know how to, how to properly, how to, <laughs> but they sat in council and they, they boiled down to two names. One man was named Joseph and the other man was named Matthias. 
after some deliberation, Matthias was the man and he'll fill the vacancy in the 12. You know, in as we look at church history in a larger spectrum, that guy Joseph is my hero. You know, being found worthy <laughs> but not having to serve, man, that guy is the guy I want to be like. Worthy but not having to really do the hard work. And so I want to be on the list, but I don't want to fill the seat, you know? <laughs> yeah, and we don't but, we don't uh, really know much about who he is, right? No, no, but I just imagine that guy in the spirit world with this set of scriptures, with that those verses highlighted, because I could have been there, man, yeah. you know, but I got to sit home with my wife and kids. <laughs> nice. Probably died peacefully nice. in his sleep later in his life, you know, just uh, lived a happy life. But there is, uh, as we go through, we want to inflict the modern Quorum the Twelve anciently and, and just put that back into uh into history and we want to put kind of our ideas and concepts that we that we're familiar with today back in time and say this is uh this is how it was this is how it's been always we're a, a church restored and therefore it's always been the same which is not necessarily the case god has been far more creative in the way he governs the church and the way things have have functioned but it's interesting that in early church history if you sneezed wrong, you'd be removed out of the Quorum of the Twelve. And there's, a, there's a, just a number of just fascinating stories. Uh, like, for instance, Orson Hyde and, and William McClellan, two early members of the Quorum of the Twelve, serve a mission. They are missionary companions, and they go serve for a few months. That was the primary responsibility of, of the Quorum of the Twelve, was to preach the gospel. And these two members of the Twelve went and did that. As they go out, William McClellan writes a letter to his wife, uh, Emmeline, and asked her if she's going to go to school in the fall. And education was a priority in Kirtland. And uh, as we know, School of Prophets and other establishments that try to teach the saints, well, his, his, uh, his wife just made a comment, says, I'm, I'm really busy. I don't know if I'll be able to. And William McClellan says, well, you know, it's probably good. Orson hides with me and he's, he's a superior teacher. And until he gets back, I'm, I don't know how well the school's really going to be run because he is, he is professional school teacher. Well, this letter that he wrote back, just making that slight comment that Orson Hyde was a, was a superior teacher, got back to Sidney Rigdon, the current teacher, <laughs> who was serving the first presidency <laughs> and was quite upset, quite upset that, that a members of the 12 would, uh, would, would speak like this about him. And so they removed him out of the 12 while they were still serving missions. They didn't know they were removed out of wow. the 12 until they got back. They got back and they <laughs> said, we've been released. We've only been serving for three months, you know, four months. They came back and apologized as we did not mean anything by that letter. And so they were welcomed back right into the 12, you know, um, but they were removed. They were the first ones to be removed out of the 12 so, because they of a slight comment. <laughs> so were they but, uh, were they replaced during that time or? Nope. They came back and and this would happen pretty, pretty. It was just a pretty common thing. If, if, if you did something hmm. slight, you'd be removed. If you came back and apologized, you'd be put right back in. And so we think of this drawn out process of, of releasing or, or excommunication or something, you know, a little more extreme example. I'm going to foil that against another story where Joseph and his younger brother, William, get into a bad argument one day in December of 1835. The Quorum of the Twelve has been organized since February, you know, so the Quorum of the Twelve has been around for 10 months. And Joseph and William's argument inflated to such an extent that it went to blows. They went they began to fight. Well, I think the fight was a little one-sided because as uh, Joseph and, and William begin to argue, Joseph begins to take off his coat. As he's taking off his coat, it's around, around his elbows when uh, William lunges at him and knocks him to his back. 
And now Joseph's arms are successfully pinned beneath him because of his coat was around his elbows. And William began to wail on his brother. All right. Joseph would complain later that after that, uh, that beating, it was uncomfortable to sit, lie, or stand. And I'm not sure what other options there are after that. You know, <laughs> either you're sitting, you're lying, or standing, right? Yeah. And after this, uh, yeah, here is a member of the Corner of the Twelve that just beat up the prophet, you know. And at the end of this, Joseph <laughs> Man. didn't think much of it. But other members of the Corner of the Twelve says, I don't think that's right. And so they removed him out of the Twelve. You know, it wasn't Joseph's doing. Apparently, Joseph was used to right. wrestling and fighting with his brothers, but there's a decorum that comes with the 12 that they hadn't learned yet, you know, <laughs> that apparently you don't punch nice. one another. Apparently, Joseph or William would later say, I punched you as a brother and not as an apostle, you know, <laughs> as part of his apology, he would make that uh, that trademark statement. So when, when they removed them, you know, when William was removed from the quorum, was it a, I mean, didn't, didn't Joseph... Wasn't Joseph in the meeting and say, "Hey, don't do that." I mean, it's not a big deal. We're just we're just family here. Or were these decisions that the Quorum of the Twelve was just making? The charges were brought against them, and there was there was a, a bit of a, a feeling that that this was inappropriate behavior. And so uh, once word got back to to William, you know, William would he takes a little time, takes a couple of weeks to cool off. He'll go back to Joseph and apologize. And what I've noticed is you can do just about anything to Joseph, and he would forgive you. You know, Joseph will have good qualities, you know, rough qualities. He's still being polished. But one quality that Joseph has that I think is very impressive is on most instances, he would forgive if you just came back and apologized. From a beating with fists to a mis misspoken word, Joseph, uh, on to William McClellan, Orson Hyde, he just says, I frankly forgave them, you know, and that's Joseph's just kind of personality trait. One that I wish I had, you know, how quickly he would forgive. As far as the, you mentioned, you know, peculiarities in the 12, uh, what are some stories in that realm? Yeah, yeah. You know, when, when the Corn of the 12 was first organized, they organized the, the Corn of the 12 by age. And so by, you know, they're organizing in February, by about May, they have had this organization where the oldest, who was about 35, down to about 23, all Corn of the 12. But they really had to determine, you know, how the quorum functions and who's in charge. And so what they would often do is they would rotate who was president for a while. And they'd go, you know, the senior would be president and then they'd go down to the next senior and down all the way down. So everyone had a turn to conduct and practice being in charge of the meetings. Eventually, Thomas B. Marsh will will be set apart or recognized as president of the 12. But this idea of age will stick for a while. And they have trouble getting this, this idea out of their head that if you're older, you should be in charge. And so when new members, when, when members of the Quorum 12 fall out and new ones come in, something interesting happens. And they'll call Wilford Woodruff as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. And John Taylor had been serving for about four months. But because Wilford Woodruff was older, they leapfrogged him in seniority. And this leapfrog would stay in until about 1861. And so for the next Almost 20 years, Wilford Woodruff would have seniority over John Taylor. And it wasn't until Brigham Young decided, no, this needs to be time in the 12 and not age. Now, Brigham is an eclectic individual and he has a lot of interesting ideas. And so he will flip flop on this occasionally. And uh, earlier in his life, he well, he has a very strong testimony of temple ordinances. 
And when he is sealed to his wife, he has a very strong feeling that children that were produced from that union, those who were born in the covenant, would, in fact, you know, basically rule the world. He had this feeling that these were specially special individuals who were born in the covenant who would who would do great things in their life. And so uh, at one point, he ordains one of his sons by the name of John W. Young. He ordains him to, to uh, the office of apostle. The issue is John W. Young is 11 at the time. Oh, wow. He'll ordain three of his sons apostles well before a, a, there's a vacancy in the quorum, but they'll hold the office of apostle without being in the quorum. Now, comparing the story of Wilf, Wilf Woodruff and John Taylor, in one meeting, Brigham Young is there, and his uh, one of his secretaries by the name of Joseph F. Smith is is in the in the room, and he says, "When the Spirit moves upon me, I intend to act upon it." And he had uh, Joseph Smith bring a chair in the middle of the room and ordained Joseph F. Smith as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, or excuse me, an apostle first, and a few months later, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. But what's interesting is since since Brigham Young Jr had been ordained as a young man, when he is called in the 12, he will leapfrog John, uh, Joseph F. Smith. And so his belief is not only, it's not just time in the quorum of the 12, but it's time as, mem- as a member of, of that quorum. So as time as an apostle. Yeah. And so at times you will flip-flop, he'll flip-flop different names and re- reorganize the quorum not only by age, but how long you've been an apostle, how long you've been in the 12. And there's a lot of other factors that uh, at least Brigham will bring into this. Yeah. So, and, and really that impacts the, you know, who becomes church president in the future, I would imagine, right? If they're yeah, taking different yeah. spots in, in the in the quorum. He'll remove individuals like Orson Hyde, Orson Pratt, and remove their seniority because they spent some time outside of the quorum of the 12. And so he'll remove their quorum and kind of bring them down a notch or two. And so you can see during Brigham Young's era, if you look at the Quorum of the Twelve, that they're still trying to figure a few things out. And people's people come into the Quorum with different background. And so they're still trying to figure out how does this function? How does the Quorum really work in the world? In fact, the Quorum had been out serving missions for so long that they went for 32 years without ever meeting together as a Quorum. Wow. That there's always somebody gone. There's always somebody missing. And it was so momentous that they all got back together in 1868 that they decided to take a photo of the first presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve for the first time together in 32 years. Always gone, always, always working. And so, wow, yeah, the the quorum, you know, how the quorum functions just works line upon line. And as Brigham gets older, he begins to do things to help alleviate some burden. At one point, he will call roughly six to seven counselors in the first presidency because the Quorum of the Twelve primarily functioned as missionaries and running the administration of the church became taxing as he uh, got older. And so he'll call, I think there'll be eight people in the first presidency at one point to help bear off uh, the weight of the administrative burden that they're carrying. And all these individuals aren't always necessarily coming, called from the Quorum of the Twelve like we see today. No, no. Some will be apostles will hold the priesthood office as apostle, but not all come from the quorum. He doesn't pull them out because that would pull them away from their primary responsibility of preaching the gospel. And he doesn't mm-hmm. want to, he doesn't want to pull them out of the field. And, and so he'll uh, bring in other individuals. 
And when this was happening was, I mean, because now if you're in the first presidency, like when Elder Uchtdorf was president Uchtdorf, he presided, you know, he was the presiding authority in, in meetings, even if, you know, President Nelson was there, right? And so did that tradition, was that tradition still there where there's a presiding component of the first presidency over the Quorum of the Twelve? Yeah, and so they're they're going to go and and take care of administrative business. I'm not sure if anyone really, if there was an issue of I'm in charge in this room and and you're not. It yeah. was we have responsibilities and we're going to take care of our responsibilities. You know, um, yeah. whether it be you know administrative tithing funds and things along those lines, temple construction, you know, and just bearing off immigration and things like that. So. Yeah. And I'm curious, I don't mean to jump around in your outline, but this concept of presiding is interesting. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a thing and I, I recognize it's a thing. It's an important thing to understand, but there's also a deep tradition in it to the point where we're like, I don't really, like, why does it really matter that the second counselor of the state presidency is there and he's presiding when the, he doesn't really know what's going on. Right. So was that a, you know, a concept from the beginning of, of the quorum and of this, of the keys restored, or was that maybe something that, came over time? You know, I, it definitely has grown over time and evolved and morphed and developed over time. And where someone in maybe an award, a bishop, almost has to have an eagle eye, you know, and be almost borderline clairvoyant because of all the responsibilities they need to have from that stand to make sure that there's order and that yeah. things are running properly. I think as things begin, you know, Joseph was the final word. Mm-hmm. And there needed to be some sort of line of authority when I'm not here, who's in charge. And so the doctrine comes in one of the first, you know, revelations that were given as part of a training for the Quorum of the Twelve was section 107. And so where some of these lines of authority are beginning to be outlined, what do we do, you know, if, if a counselor is here, if, you know, et cetera. And so essentially when Joseph is there, he's in charge. If he's not a counselor's in charge. And where the first presidency is not, the Quorum of the Twelve takes the lead. And so that was one of the one of the trainings that they get from Section 107, you know, of, yeah. of these questions that you're asking right now is how do we preside? Who's in charge? Who do we turn to if, if there's conflict, if a question arises? And that question is not clearly understood. We all understood that Joseph was in charge. But when Joseph passes, it becomes problematic. Brigham Young comes back like a, you know, a thunderstorm. Coming back into the into Nauvoo, going, you know, the, the Quorum of the Twelve leads. But Sidney Rigdon had come back beforehand, and he is smooth in the way he speaks. People, people liked him, typically. At one point, there was a conflict between Joseph and Sidney, and Joseph tries to release Sidney out of the first presidency, and the people don't sustain it. Oh, wow. And it frustrates Joseph. He goes, all in favor of releasing him, you know, and uh, we don't say this anymore, right? We just, we <laughs> thank them and they, and they write off in the sunset. But, but Joseph goes, all in favor of releasing Sydney. And nobody wanted, nobody wanted that. People liked Sydney's, to hear him speak. He was charismatic. Mm-hmm. And Joseph got very frustrated. And he says, you, I have tried to throw him off my shoulders and you've thrown him back. I throw him onto your shoulders now. Like he was just very frustrated with Sydney, And when Sidney comes back after the martyrdom of, of Joseph, he doesn't want to be the president of the church. He doesn't want to lead the, the Quorum of the Twelve, but he feels like there needs to be a guardian of truth. And so that's what he, he proposes himself as, as I want to be a guardian of the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Hmm. And that's why he frames it, you know, that, that these teachings are real. These, the, the, there's good things in here. But Brigham had, a, had, a, had an understanding of keys and how things should function. 
at least he was, he's beginning to, I'm sure there was lots he needed to learn, but, but he came back and that was his message. We are the quorum of the 12 and we preside where there's no first presidency. Brigham with this, with this sharp sense of humor says, if it says to Sydney, he says, if you want to be Joseph's counselor, go where he is right now, you know, and, uh, and gives him that challenge. <laughs> That's great. Any other, uh, I'm trying to have a hard time saying this peculiarities of in the 12 that uh, we haven't mentioned, you know, uh, there might be, you know, as things go on, as, as we turn the century into, into the 20th century, things really begin to stabilize. And there are some, some interesting documents in the, in the 19th century where they they were still kind of working things out and they didn't know exactly how everything functioned. Things were revealed line upon line, but as we come into, uh, into the 20th century, I think a lot of these peculiarities begin to kind of hammer themselves out. Although we have individuals like David McKay, who towards the end of his life kind of follows in the footsteps of Brigham Young, expands the first presidency and initially asks Hubie Brown, you know, to come into, uh, you know, to be an assistant to uh, the first presidency. And he's very clear. Hubie Brown was the first one. He says, you are an assistant to the twelve. And then later we'll call a third, fourth, and fifth counselor, you know, yeah. but uh, towards the end of his life, he'll, you know, he, he goes, I, I need to, I'm carrying too much. I need, I need to offload. And yeah. so you'll see some, some adjustments. And so when, when David O. McKay, you know, expanded the first presidency to multiple counselors, was he ordaining each one of these individuals to the office of apostle or was it more an administrative thing? You know, and, and, and throughout church history, members of the first presidency, there is no requirement. And in fact, if I'll jump back a little bit, uh, it was in 1931 where uh, the second counselor in the first presidency, a man by the name of Charles Nibley, his grandson is very, fairly famous, named Hugh. <laughs> but Charles Nibley was the presiding bishop of the church before he was called in the, as a second counselor in the first presidency. When he passes away, they discuss who should fill this vacancy. You know, Charles Nibley did some wonderful work, and they says, who can be this this individual? And Finally, they came to this conclusion, I know the right man. And so they wrote a letter to an individual by the name of J. Reuben Clark. And they wrote him a letter asking him to be in the first presidency. And J. Reuben Clark politely wrote a letter back, says, I'd love to, but I'm really busy. You know, but uh, the reason I bring up this story is not that, that he turned down the calling the first presidency. The president of the church, uh, he was grant to said, hey, listen, we'll wait for you. And they waited for uh, roughly 18 months for him to 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 finish his business working for the government. I think he was an ambassador at the time down to Mexico. And so they allowed him to kind of clean things up. When he came <laughs> in the first presidency, they ordained him. He was a member of uh, of a stake quorum of the 70. Uh-huh. Something that we really don't have uh, today, but they ordained him to the office of high priest. And it wasn't, and he'll serve in the first presidency for almost a year before they will... Uh, set him apart as a member, uh, or excuse me, uh, they will ordain him to the office of, of apostle. And later he'll, he'll have a seniority ranking in the 12, but he came in and they ordained him a high priest. And that was, you know, uh, president Winder under Joseph F. Smith served as in that office. One other quick little thing about, about offices, uh, in the priesthood, Joseph Smith, uh, made a comment that all priesthood is Melchizedek. Alvin R. Dyer was called as a counselor an additional counselor to David McKay and was ordained to the office of apostle. When David McKay passed away, the first presidency was dissolved and Alvin R. Dyer would later serve as a member of the Quorum of the Seventy. 
and ordained to the office of the 70. He's the only person I know of in church history who went from the office of apostle to the office of, of 70. And I think there was, it had, it's not a common thing for a situation like that to arise. But keep in mind Joseph's comments, all priesthood is Melchizedek. He's not being demoted. He's just giving additional or, or different assignments. And so, Interesting. Wow. Yeah. And so, and what was the specific, did you say the specific reason of why they did, he became a 70 after being apostle? He was called in the quorum of the 70. And oh, so okay. uh, to serve at, you know, from the first presidency and then he was an assistant, you know, assistant or, or fourth counselor along those lines. And then as the administration changed, they felt strongly to go in, a, in another direction. Nice. Another office that was just kind of interesting that, that we don't have anymore was an assistant to the 12. Yeah. And, uh, and, for, and for a while, those individuals were ordained high priests and would serve. The first one that was called was a man by the name of Marion G. Romney. He will later serve in the Quorum of the Twelve in the First Presidency. But Marion G. Romney was, was the very first person called as an assistant to the Twelve, and he was called out of the audience without any warning. He was just called and says, uh, Marion G. Romney. And they called about four, five, six individuals. He says, I don't remember any of the other names. When my name was read, that was it. Now, I bring up that story for, for two reasons. Number one, as the first member, as an, a first individual, as an assistant to the Twelve, or as this kind of this unique calling. But something else was interesting is all of his friends began to, to kind of, you know, tell him when there was a vacancy in the 12, they said, Marion, you are shoe in to be a member of the Quorum of the 12. You've been trained. God is preparing you right now. You're the man. You're going to be there, you know. And he began to believe it. And when there was a vacancy in the 12 that arose, he thought for sure he's going to get a phone call, sat by the phone, waiting for it to come. And the phone call never came. Some Another individual was called in the Quorum of the 12. and Marion G. Romney kind of had a chiding from the Holy Ghost, you know, saying, listen, you're seeking for positions. Stop it. And Marion G. Romney, bless his heart, began to, uh, on a personal journey, said, I want to try to get this, this, these feelings out of my heart. You know, this pride, I just want this out. So he began to fast about it. He fasted every Sunday about this issue. I, I don't want to seek position. I, I need pride out of my heart. And so he fasted every single Sunday for seven years. Wow. At the end of the seven years, he finally just sat down. And how do you really write this in your journal? I have pride under control. You know, like <laughs> that's a hard statement to write down. And so, but he does write, he goes, I'm in a good place. I know that I'm where God needs me to be. And I'm not seeking for anything else. I will just do what God asked me to do. And he wrote that in his journal, and uh, the very next day, he was called by the president of the church to serve as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. Oh, wow. You know, and it just seems though that God is refining us in really unique ways. And here is Marin G. Romney, who was one of the greats in church history. Yeah. But I think he's great because that private private thing that he did on his own, you know? Yeah. So with this uh, calling of assistant to the Twelve, which lasted, I think, till the early 80s, right, until President Kimmel just said, uh, they're all 70s now, and we have quorums, and yeah. we're getting a little more organized yeah. here for modern times. But uh, yeah. I, it seems like for many years, the vacancies in the Quorum of the Twelve came from these assistants to the Twelve. Like, I think James E. Faust was in the uh, was the assistant yeah. to Twelve, and, and many others. And they were were they ordained to the office of 70 at that time, or were they just simply high priests? You know, uh, we have a long list, you know, from 1941 to about 1980, you know, th th this long list of individuals who served, I, I believe, and I, I don't know if I, if, if I can say this 
for every single one, but they were ordained high priests. That was kind of the typical thing. And were, uh, were their yeah. responsibilities different than a 70 then? I can't determine the difference because the, in my mind right now, when I think of 70, they are to assist the 12 in their labors. Yeah, and I right. just think, well, how would that be different? Yeah. And maybe they were just more closely associated. In my mind, this is how I see things, that the seven presidents and the 70 kind of fill the role that that was taking up before. And then the seven presidents and 70 helped organize and were, they work almost a liaison between the 12 and the 70 and, and help things function. And so... And still carry a lot of the administrative responsibilities so the 12 can go and, and preach the gospel, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's interesting. And it, it just makes me wonder how much currently, like when a, a 70 comes to to a, a stake as a visiting authority and maybe calling a stake president and setting apart that stake president, obviously keys are involved and 70s don't necessarily have keys, but they are a sort of delegated keys in those moments, special assignments to, you know, function in place of the, the quorum of the 12. And so... It makes me wonder if that was that concept was solidified with these assistants to the twelve, if they were going out and, and conducting business like that, where they were, you know, yeah, taking keys and and assu- assuming the role of keys for a weekend and and visiting stakes and whatnot. I don't know. Yeah, you you know, and that that's the beauty of the keys that this authority can be delegated, and the amount of pressure that's put on the core of the twelve to speak, to teach, you know, their primary responsibilities, but their responsibilities are also to individuals, you Mm -hmm. know, to go and seek the one, but then they also have to carry on, you know, so many, you know, the missionary department, the temple department, these various, you know, aspects and anything they can do to kind of share that, that burden would help them work, move faster. So, yeah. Tell us a little bit about uh, some un- unexpected deaths. I mean, when I think of that, yeah. I think of uh, Harold B. Lee, right? Everybody, he's yeah. sustained his prophet yeah. and he's in his early 70s. You think we're going to have a prophet for decades, right? And uh, quickly, it's uh, what, 18 months or something that uh, suddenly he passes away. But th- there's some more dramatic un- unexpected deaths yeah. in the corner of the 12th. Yeah. In fact, let's just, just key off of that one just for, just for a second. In, in a fascinating book called From Heart to Heart, an autobiography by Russell M. Nelson that he wrote, hmm. he wrote about a visionary experience that he had where Harold Bailey came and visited him in a dream. And he asked the question, why did you leave? You know, you're only in for 18 months. That was unexpected. You know, wh- why, why? And uh, the response was interesting. He says, he says, I, I contracted uh, an illness that would be embarrassing to myself and to the church. And it was decided that I should just go home. And, uh, you know, here is, that's an interesting comment, you know, that, yeah. that elder Russell M. Nelson makes because why aren't we all called called home before the embarrassment of dementia and other things set in? If God is a God of healing, why can't he heal an individual? Why that option, you know? And, and that's, that's the question we sometimes we needed, you know, it's a personal issue. Why did he get the blessing when other individuals don't, you know, and other individuals need to stay a little bit longer. One really interesting story is a man by the name of Alonzo Hinckley. I remember the corner of the 12 back in the 1930s. He, was called in the Quorum of the Twelve and immediately was diagnosed with cancer, almost almost immediately. And so, what a lot of these individuals would do in the in the you know early twentieth centuries, late you know nineteenth century, is you'd go sit on the beach, you know, because that heals all, right? Joseph yeah, Smith, as a young good. man, leg operation. As soon as his healing process involved sitting on the beach, right? You you go and sit in that salt air. Well. Alonzo Hinckley goes down uh, to Southern California and sits on the beach. 
And I don't know if that's going to cure cancer, but probably cause more cancer with the, with the sun and everything. But <laughs> he, he goes out there and just smelling the salt air. He says that he drifted off for a time, just fell asleep. And his father woke him up. His father had been had been dead for quite some time. And he says, uh, Alonzo, you're coming home. And uh, Elder Hinckley says, no, I've been just called in the Quorum of the Twelve. I'm not coming. You know, uh, I have work to do. I have things to do. This dream repeated three times where his father would come, says, it's time to come home. It's time to come home. And he says, no, I am not coming home. <laughs> he goes and goes back to the, the, the first presidency, goes back to Salt Lake, and he says, I need to be released. And the answer is no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, he's not the only one who sought to be released from this calling, felt overwhelmed or felt like, the, you know, I don't know. But uh, he was told no. He was living with his daughter, daughter Afton, for a time. And his daughter went off for a, uh, to go grab some groceries, came back, checked on her dad, he says, Dad, how are you doing? And he says, uh, says I'm doing great. I uh, says, really? Because you've been really sick. You've been bedridden. You know, he says, you're, why so good? He says, while you're gone, three individuals came and visited me, dressed in the robes of the priesthood. They gave me a blessing, and they said, I'm going home. And, and so he will serve, uh, if I remember right, just about a year in the Corn of the I think 14 months, and wow. a member of the Corn of the will be called in. Some calls come really unexpected. Another individual Let's see, uh, by the name of uh, George Q. Morris was called in the Quorum of the Twelve. He is called at age 80, all right? Uh, and so here's an individual. Usually, you know, you think, we want somebody that can, that's young, that can go out and take care of business. One of his first assignments as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve was uh, to serve on the church's softball committee, you know, and he was there Wait, faithfully. That, that, was yeah. a, that was a committee? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so apparently the youth had a softball league in the church and sports was big business back in the 1950s. And they had all church basketball tournaments. They had all church softball tournaments. And that was one of his administrative responsibilities. Was and to this take is care in the, the, the 60s when he's called, right? I'm just Googling uh, as we're talking. George Morris, let's see. He comes in, if I remember right, in 1954, if I remember right. But uh, okay. I could be off. But uh, yeah, we have, you know, some of these calls come at just really unusual times. There was another man. He was he was called by in, in 1950, a man by the name of Delbert Stapley. He was a state president, and uh, there was a vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve, and he was invited to come up to general conference. Many, uh, even today, state presidents are, are given tickets and are allowed to come uh, to, go to go to state conference. He decided to travel and, and, and go to general conference, but he was nervous because he had this impression, and he didn't know if it was a real impression or his own heart or what that he'd be called in the Quorum of the Twelve. He got a hotel room in the Hotel Utah, now currently the, the Joseph Smith Building. And for those who are unfamiliar, uh, that, that building is just essentially across the street from the Tabernacle where they held General Conference. President Stapley, stake president, would uh, leave his hotel room and run down to a General Conference during the opening hymn. All right, he'd show up late. He didn't want anyone to talk to him. And during the closing hymn, he would excuse himself out and he would just go back to his hotel room. And he would do this for all the sessions. He didn't want anyone to know he was there. He didn't want anybody to recognize like what was what was going on. And <laughs> trying to game the system, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> this is like Jonah, like isn't it? You know, let's <laughs> if no one knows where I'm at. You know, he uh, one day he comes or one evening he's like, I'm I'm starving. I need to go get something to eat. Now keep in mind, general conference was not two days back then. It was a few more days than just yeah. just the two days. 
he goes, I'm starving. He gets them to eat. He's I think everybody's gone. Everybody's gone to bed. I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to go get, get some to eat. So he goes down the elevator, he, elevator doors open up. He looks at the, the lobby. It's, it's free and clear. So he's like, I can make it across, go grab something to eat. He's walking across the lobby and he hears his name and he turns around and there's George Albert, <laughs> George Albert Smith, president of the church. He goes, president Stapley, I've been looking all over, all over for you. <laughs> It just so happened. It was the one time that he left his room to uh, to go get some to eat. Wow. He, uh, President Smith extended the call to member of the to be a member of the Quorum of the Twelve right there in the foyer of the Joseph Smith Building. You know, <laughs> good old uh, hallway calling. They're, they'll still have that's it right. Here. <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, not the shit put him into uh, rough of a light later in his life, towards the end of his life. Delbert Stapley, Elder Stapley. His kids came to him and says, you got to slow down, dad. You were working too hard. And he, his reply back, he says, I was not called in the quorum of the 12 to sit still. And he will literally wear out his life in the service of the quorum and uh, wow, uh, awesome. of, of the kingdom. So what else? Any other unexpected calls? These are fun. Yeah, let's do, I'll, I'll do one more. Um, this is uh, this is one of my favorites. Heber J. Grant uh, was called. He was in his in his late 20s when he was called in the quorum of the 12. And there's so many fun stories about Heber J. Grant, but let me just limit to just this one idea. He was called in the Quorum of the Twelve. There was a vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve for almost two years. The first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve just weren't filling the vacancies. When the vacancies were fi- were filled, it was by Heber J. Grant and another man by the name of George Teasdale. Okay, Heber J. Grant felt completely overwhelmed. He was in his late 20s. To be a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, he just didn't feel qualified. He'd already served as, as a state president on Twila, you know, but... Uh, he felt completely overwhelmed. He does not tell this story until he's present in the church. This is a, a very sacred story to him. He was on assignment, I believe, down in Arizona, and he was with a group of individuals, brand new member of the Quorum of the Twelve, junior member, and he just didn't feel qualified. He didn't feel like he should be there. And so he, uh, on his way down, down to Arizona, he told the other individuals he was traveling with, he goes, please, let me have some time alone. Travel on ahead. I'm just going to go this on this road, you on that road, and I'll meet up with you. And they, they warned him about some of the dangers that were in the area. And he says, I'll be fine. And so somewhere, I don't know where exactly, in my mind, I travel. I live in Southern California. When I go up to Utah, I just travel I-15. I just kind of, my mind's eye, picture young Heber J. Grant off by one of those shrub oaks somewhere. And yeah. he says he knelt down and he just proud his soul and he goes, it shouldn't be me, you know. And he says a vision opened to his mind where he began to see, he began to hear what he saw as a divine council. He saw the Savior enthroned in this council with other individuals. He says the Savior spoke and said the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve are having difficulty filling the vacancies in the Twelve. Do you have any suggestions? You know, like, let's just open up to discussion, you know. And uh, in this vision, he saw an individual stand up. He says he recognized him instantly as the prophet Joseph Smith. And uh, he says, I nominate Heber J. Grant. He sat down. He says, another individual stood up. And uh, he says, he recognized Heber J. Grant says, I recognize him instantly too. It was Jedediah Morgan Grant, who served as a member of the first presidency with Brigham Young and was uh, Heber's father. He says, I, I second the nomination. And he says, we'll move forward with the name Heber J. Grant. And then the vision closed. This story that Heber J. Grant tells, he doesn't tell it until he becomes president of the church. Very sacred experience that he has. But it just taught me a little bit about, I think, how God functions. That I, I, I think 
like in my mind, I just want to be a good soldier. I just want to salute and say, God, tell me what to do. And we'll just move on. Right. You know, and just, yeah. and my prayers reflect that God, tell me what to do. I'll do it. I don't have to do in this situation. Tell me what to do. I will go. And I just want to be like Nephi. I'll go and do. And I wonder, you know, here is a vision of the savior sitting in council, a savior of being who knows all ask other individuals. What do you think? You know, what do you, from your perspective? And I think God is trying to train us a lot, you know, and death doesn't get us out of this training. You know, here's Joseph and Jedediah sitting in this council and, and they're still giving their opinion. They're still helping with the kingdom. And the veil got to be pulled back for a minute and Heber J. Grant got to see a piece of it. But this vision, this story changed me personally, just the way I pray, because I know the question's going to ask, if, if, if I ask God, what, you know, what do you want me to do in this situation? The question's almost invariably, what do you think? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And uh, I think yeah. there's some play in this. Yeah, I really appreciate that story as well. That because there's all this pressure sometimes, you know, being in a bishopric or mm. in the state presidencies of like calling people, and sometimes you can get trapped in this like, well, I just want to do what the Lord wants me to do, right? So we're gonna pick the the elders quorum instructor or the uh, you know a primary instructor, and we got to know who's the name God, like who is it, right? And a lot of times, like you know, just I gave you the authority. I gave you the keys, like make a decision and move on. Like, I don't, I don't have some chalkboard in heaven where I'm trying to, where I'm writing down every name that goes in every calling. Sometimes this, he puts a lot, it gives us a lot of autonomy because we are agents of action. Right. And as yeah. leaders, we make decisions, even though, you know, maybe God would have made a different decision, but that's okay. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, and, and how the spirit works on an, on an individual, I, I find it's interesting that there's been times in church history and we don't, we don't see it today. And when I say church history, I'm thinking like the 1930s, the 1940s, even it, there'd be a vacancy in the 12 and they'd struggle over it. And mm -hmm. the vacancy would, would last for a year, you know, and it's not that they just ignored it, that we can, well, we're fine with 11 right now, yeah. or the first presidency, we get along with two of us. They're really seeking out the, you know, what God wants. Now, let me just tell you just one other, just quick story. The, uh, yeah. about Heber J. Grant, when, when he comes into the quorum, the 12, there's two vacancies in the 12, if you remember. He was serving as stake president on Tooele. He goes into general conference, and he's in the crowds trying to find a seat, and he sees his good friend, George Teasdale. George Teasdale looks at him, and he goes, and he yells across. He goes, Heber, today you and I are going to be called, <coughs> and he starts coughing uncontrollably, and then he walks away. Heber J. Grant <laughs> says, the spirit filled in the line, a member of the quorum of the 12. And it shocked him. He's like, are you kidding? You know, so the meeting begins and ends and nobody's called. And Heber's like, the spirit whispered to me, my friend yelled across like I'm the guy. No, no. And so he goes back home at the energy conference. No one's called. He gets a telegraph later from Salt Lake says, please come to Salt Lake. And he goes, no. <laughs> and the telegraph comes again. He goes, we need you in Salt Lake. He says, I'm needed in Tooele. You know, I have state conference coming up. I'm preparing for it. No. Because the president of the church needs to talk to you. And he goes, I'll be there. Okay. And so he comes in to Salt Lake. And as he comes in to meet with the first presidency to get this call issued to him, he passes by his friend, George Teasdale. And George Teasdale looks at him and goes, Heber, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And that's all he'll say. Afterwards, George Teasdale confided to him. He says, he says, the, you know, a few weeks ago when I saw you in general conference, I had this impression that I'd be called in the corner of the 12. I told God I couldn't do it. And God told me, he says, don't worry, Heber will sit next to you. And he says, okay, I can do it. If I have my good friend Heber, I, well, I can do it. And uh, I was so excited 
that I began to yell out in conference, you know, as they're coming in, he says, you know, we're going to be called. Like, I'm excited. I get to sit next to Heber J. Grant, you know. He says, halfway through the sentence, the spirit told me to stop. So I pretended to cough and walked away. <laughs> and I, I've oh always goodness. loved George Teasdale for that. Like, yeah. there's been times when the spirit whispered something to me and I says, hold on, I have something to say, you know, <laughs> wait till I'm done. And yeah. here's, a, here's an individual who was sense enough to listen to the Holy Ghost and act immediately. I just, these guys are just fascinating individuals. Yeah. So, so I, I got to have you tell the, these are the names we're more familiar with, like Henry B. Eyring when he was called to the, mm-hmm. the first presidency. What, what's that story? Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, let's, let's go in the modern era a little bit to the names that, you, that you're familiar with. He was called in the first presidency and President Hinckley apparently had a phone that had members of the Quorum of the Twelve on speed dial. Now keep in mind, this is in the nineties. And so, this is high tech, you know, this isn't, <laughs> but uh, President Hinckley was completely efficient, you know, and, and got a lot done, but at times would pick up the phone, hit somebody in the speed dial, give them an assignment and then hang up and call the next person, give them an assignment. And sometimes occasionally President Hinckley would press the wrong button. And as he's, as he's trying to get work done and be efficient and get the, get the work moving, he would hit a button. You know, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve would pick up, and he would just give the assignment. You know, and and so uh, and, and one, President Hinckley would think he was talking to somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah. And if, hey, you know what? Maybe uh, maybe that person needed to hear. I don't know. So Elder Henry B. Eyring one evening comes home. He was pulling in the garbage cans, you know, from from the street. And in my mind, I I never pictured apostles doing things like this. But he was pulling in the garbage cans when his wife came out with the cordless phone and said. President Hinckley's on the phone. So he grabbed the phone, garbage can in one hand, the phone in the other. And he goes, you know, this is hell. Or he, he goes, he goes, hello. And uh, the assignment came. I'm calling you to the first presidency. And so the reply back from uh, from Elder Iring was, President, this is Hal Iring. You know, like, <laughs> are you sure you pressed the right button? <laughs> and President Hinckley goes, I know who I'm talking to. I'm calling you to the first presidency. And uh, the call was brief, to the point, and uh, and cut right to the chase. So that's awesome. Yeah, but he was taken back. He didn't think that he was the one. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And I guess President Nelson, since he's been president of the church, I, uh, filling vacancy in the twelve, he's taken a different approach. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. Let me just back to just one short story. Francis Elder Holland, who we all know and love, he was called at home ten o'clock at night by the president of the church. Asked him if he wouldn't mind if he wasn't too busy, if he would meet meet with him, I think at 8 a.m. the next morning. And so Elder Holland assured him he would. And so the next morning, over a sleepless night, I'm sure, Elder Holland was there meeting with President Hunter. And President Hunter extended the call to him and then brought him immediately over to the temple where he was set apart and then went for the rest of the day, full day of meetings. And this had been the pattern you know, like I hope he didn't have anything else on his calendar that day. I know, I know. It's just (laughs) fascinating. Like, and it happened in June. It wasn't even like general conference. It was just like, we're going to call you. We're just going to jump right through. Now think about this. There's been times where individuals were called into the corner of the 12 and their spouse heard about it over the radio or on TV from general conference. That's how their spouse was notified for the first time in general conference, you know, uh, for the first time in, in church history, Elder Gong and Elder Suarez are last two in numbers 101, 102 member, uh, members of the Quorum of the Twelve. For the first time in church history, President Nelson invited the spouse in. 
I'm not saying that Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, or anyone else did it wrong, but President Nelson has set a new precedent. We're going to call the spouse in and have them be involved with the call. And with each of these, President Nelson has taken the individual and their wife by the hand, and they sat there in a little triangle, okay? And they each held hands when he extended the call. And so this is something new that's never happened in church history. Something else that's new that President Nelson has started is how he organized the first presidency. Typically, what takes place is when the first presidency is dissolved, the Quorum of the Twelve meets together. And sometimes there will be as many as 14 members of the Quorum of the Twelve, you know, meet together. And the second in seniority will nominate the first in seniority and then set them apart. He is set apart. He's not ordained a prophet. He's already been a prophet for years, for decades, right? But they're set apart as the president of president of the church. So President Nelson was set apart by President Oaks. This has been the pattern that's gone through, except for Joseph F. Smith was set apart by the, by the church patriarch. It's the only, the, the only exception. Now, one thing that's unique about President Nelson is as this meeting was brought together, President Nelson decided to interview every member in that room, interviewed them separately, and each of them brought forth names of who they thought they should be in the first presidency. And they were not allowed to counsel with one another, not to compare to compare notes or, or anything like that. They had to sit in silence as he interviewed each of those individuals. Oh, wow. <laughs> and wow. then he prayed about it, came out and said, all right, my first counselor, Dallin H. Oaks. That's how much notice uh, Elder Oaks had to be in the first presidency. You know, and then Henry B. Eyring, who has had some experience in the first presidency. But th that's been a new precedent where they've gone through and interviewed every individual and everyone's got to nominate some names, yeah. you know, and and make some suggestions. Yeah. And a lot of people may not uh, realize this, but in the process of, you know, I've been through the process of calling a stake presidency when I was called is into the stake presidency. And, uh, you know, as you meet with I was a bishop at the time and I met with a visiting authority and they asked for names of who I think thought would uh, would serve as a great stake president. Now, I for the record, the stake president's name was on my list, so I'm just saying I'm, I'm pretty, pretty good at it. But uh, uh, but then he called me as his counselor, so it, it came back. To me. But but yeah, so that's it's sort of a little bit of that type of experience of just saying like, and I love that the spirit of counsel there. Like, all right, if it was up to you, like, who would you call in the first presidency? And that I mean, I can see how that can really help a leader. Uh, talk through something or think through that decision and, and seek deeper inspiration. Yeah. You know, I, there's sometimes where I think the spirit intervenes fairly directly and we've seen that in, in church history and there's other times where counsel, you know, where okay. let, let's talk about this for a minute and allow, allow inspiration to come through that counsel, you know? And so, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. As far as you have this section here, as far as being foretold and you've talked about Alonzo Hinckley already, but what do you mean about this concept of being foretold? You know, I, I think that there's uh, there's individuals that at times are told beforehand. You know, Hubie Brown, for instance, great member, dynamic speaker, a uh, great member of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. He was told as a, when he was a missionary walking to a meeting and somebody said, I think it was Hebrew J. Grant that made the comment, says somebody in this room will serve as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. You know, George Albert Smith, president uh, of the church, when he was a little boy, a man by the name of Zebedee Coltrane. Now, I'll give you a little background on Zebedee Coltrane to kind of add some flavor to this. Zebedee Coltrane was one of the original members of the School of the Prophets in Kirtland with uh, with Joseph Smith. Saw some miraculous things, visions, etc. 
Later in his life, he'll settle in the Spanish Fork region in Utah and serve as a patriarch. Brother Coltrane would, uh, he says that he could not sleep. He could not rest until he delivered a message to a young boy by the name of George Albert Smith. He went over and he delivered the message, gave him his patriarchal blessing where he said that he would serve as uh, serving the leading bodies of the church. He says, I need to give you this blessing. I, this won't go away until, until, I, until I give this to you. If you remember later in his life where George Albert Smith is actually was called in the Quorum of the Twelve, his health was poor and he does not serve. Even though he's in the Quorum, he does not serve in his full capacity because of his health for a number of years. And when he was first called, he had this dream where his grandfather, George A. Smith, the cousin to the prophet Joseph Smith, came to him. He says, what have you done with my name? And he says, in that, in that vision, his whole life passed before him. And uh, he says, I've done nothing to, to, that, would, that would cause you to, any embarrassment. And I just think that heaven has their hand in some of these calls. You know, there was another one, uh, Bruce R. McConkie. Before he was called in the Quorum of the Twelve, was I believe he was down in, in Mexico at a state conference. He was serving in the Quorum of the Seventy, and there was a vacancy in the Twelve, and they were doing the sustainings. You've been to a state conference before where you go through the, the business and you do these sustainings. When they got to the end, he's, he's on the stand listening to the names being read of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. When the final name, you know, there, you know the eleventh name was, was read, he heard his name immediately afterwards, Bruce R. McConkie. And he almost stopped the meeting. He goes, no, there's a mistake. You don't say my name with that quorum of the 12, you know, but nobody said it. It was the spirit that whispered into his ear, giving him a little bit of warning. Hmm. And so I, I think that some of these, some of these calls as they're given, some are given a little bit of warning and that warning is not always welcome. If I go back to Hubie Brown, just for a second, we know the story, his, his, his really famous story about the current Bush, right? Yeah. And uh, how he was a general you know, or, or excuse me, he wasn't a general. He was in a position to become a general. And uh, that position was denied him because he was a Mormon. Later in his life, he will uh, go into the oil industry and and become quite wealthy. And he's on the verge of being very, very wealthy. And so he goes, uh, he kneels down to pray one evening uh, saying, God, if, if this money is going to corrupt me, take it away from me. If, if this wealth is going to change me, I don't want it. That evening, he began to pray and he just had these horrible feelings that came upon him. And so he began to pray harder, you know, and he's in his office and his, in his home by himself. It became late in the evening. His wife came in a little worried about him. His wife comes in and goes, is Hugh, what's, she goes, well, she walks in the room wondering where he is, why he didn't come to bed. He goes, Hugh, what is in this room? Something is in this room. And Hugh looked up from praying. He goes, it's the devil. He says, I'm being tormented and I've, I have been tormented says, will you please kneel down and pray with me? And the two of them knelt down and prayed through the night to, to get some sort of relief. And the next day, uh, Hubie Brown was called as an assistant to the 12. It's interesting that, uh, that sometimes not only you get little glimpses of what's around the corner, but sometimes the adversary gets, gets a tip, you know, and uh, John Taylor made the comment, he says, no president of the church has ever walked to this earth without having the devil constantly at his elbow, you know, that... Sometimes these calls are associated with just being worked over. Sometimes we work ourselves over, work ourselves up, you know, because we, we feel unworthy. And sometimes when those feelings come, the, the adversary just stomps on it, you know, and, yeah. and really amplifies that, you know. Yeah, that, that's helpful because and there's sort of three areas that you sort of bring up. There's one, some of these individuals had an impression that came to them beforehand, sort of giving them a warning or preparing them. And, and that you still hear about happen quite a bit. 
And I always tell people, <laughs> like at least my friends, like if that happens, just swallow it and don't say it over the, the podium when you're when you're yeah. called because 30 other men also had that impression and it didn't yeah. come yeah. and then you, they sort of beat themselves up. So it's great if it happened. Just don't mention it. Yeah. So it'd be great. But and then also this this tormenting. And I think that's really important to recognize because I had a uh, my own experience when I was called as bishop you know, the call came and I'm like, great, yeah, let's do this. And it was about a week out before I'd be be called. And I've never had an experience of being tormented. And I don't, this isn't like happened to everybody, but it was such a strong tormenting that I was convinced that I, for some reason, and I couldn't even pinpoint a moment or a transgression or a sin, but I was convinced that I was somehow unworthy for this. Like there was some deep transgression that I had done, right? Maybe it was a little OCD uh, that was, coming to the surface or not, but it came to the point I called my stake president and I said, listen, I think there's something wrong here. I, this isn't, I, there's something wrong with me. I'm unworthy to do this. And he, he basically said, no, you're fine. We'll see you Sunday. <laughs> Move forward, you know, but it really was this, I mean, in hindsight, I look back like this was a torment from the adversary that he mm-hmm. it was his, his last go at convincing me that i was worthless and couldn't lead and so i think it's good for leaders just to hear that that not that every leader that's called is going to be tormented but it does happen and so i appreciate this the story of others that it can cripple you and, and really paralyze you of, of these calls because the, the adversary does not want his keys to be passed on and or, or yeah. the, not his keys. The, the adversary doesn't want the Lord's keys to be yeah. passed on and exercised and these types of things. And and then the the third category is, I, I would imagine a lot of these people like nothing happens. Just like wait, what? I'm I'm yeah. in a meeting and I'm being called up. Like wait a minute, can we talk about this first? You know, so <laughs> yeah. it's across the board of this sort of the uniqueness of this. But sometimes we have this tradition where we want to be like, oh yes, I've been knowing this call was coming as if the Lord speaks special mm-hmm. in a special way to me. Like, well, whatever, man. Like yeah. sometimes it comes, sometimes it doesn't. And just, you know, say yes to the calling let's move forward, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think if you had those feelings, what would you do, you know, a year in advance, if you knew you were going to be in the corner of the 12 or, or whatever calling fill in the blank. And I think the greatest advice is just get ready. Yeah. The call's going to come or it won't. And you won't be, it's not bad advice just to get ready. You know, yeah. God can use you in a lot of different ways. It doesn't need to be up front, but he does need people who are ready. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. And then as far as you mentioned here that the record for no movement in the 12 is 10 years, is that saying that there was a vacancy in the 12 and 10 years passed or what do you mean by that? Oh, no, it, this, it happened once for 10 years and what happened once for nine where no one in the quorum 12 passed away. Oh, okay. like a full decade. And they got to work together and function together. It happened back in the 1920s, and then it happened again in the 1990s. Yeah. President Eyring was the junior member of the quorum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, keep this in mind. You know, Statistically speaking, we can expect a change in the 12. This is, sounds a little morbid, about every yeah. three years. Yeah. You know, that off average, that that's about safe to say that something's going to happen. And so think about over your life and, and, and the great men who have, moved on, you know, and, and new individuals get called in the 12, but this succession, this movement in the 12 happens fairly regularly, you know, and so we should be prepared and understand how this all functions. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk when 
who was it? Uh, the Rasband, Stevenson, and yeah. uh, Renlin were called three members, uh, three vacancies at one time, and that's sort of anomaly. But it's happened maybe a handful of times. I don't know if there's ever been four or five, but uh, you, you know, in, in the days of Joseph Smith, man, that that quorum got <laughs> torn apart. But if we exclude him, it's yeah. only happened one other time where three were were called into the twelve at the same time. Typically, what happens is you're ordained by age. So the older individual, that age issue is still an issue, you know. And so, for instance, President Kimball and President Benson were called at the same time. And Kimball was called first because he was older. One thing that's kind of unusual is we have three individuals that were not ordained according to age. And so it's caused some kind of, well, what's going on? I don't know if it was if individuals were called and then another vacancy opened up. So another call was given. I don't know the timing of the calls. That could be it. Or just by inspiration, the God says, I need this order, you know, so. Yeah, that is tradition. Like when Elder Uchtdorf and Elder Bednar were called together, Elder Uchtdorf is older, so he is ordained as more senior in the quorum. I I mean, you assume that anyways, not that they come out and say that. And same with uh, President Nelson, which had impact on who was prophet, right? President Nelson and President Oaks called Mm -hmm. at the same time, but President uh, Nelson is older. And so he was sustained and more senior, right? Interesting. I was going to ask about... So in the history, the this office of being called to the quorum of the 70, that used to be a until death calling. Is that right? And then that was changed the emeritus status or? Yeah. So emeritus, they go emeritus at age, age 70. You know, in fact, that was something that Hubie Brown proposed to the first presidency. He says, some of these guys are getting older. You know, uh, maybe we should let the quorum of the 12 go emeritus also. And that was that was a no-go. Another stint of that was President uh, Hunter. When he was uh, or, maybe, or set apart as president of the church, he really kind of, you know, advocated, hey, listen, I don't need it. I'm old. You know, I, I, my health isn't good. No harm, no foul. Let's, you know, switch things around. It was during that same era, for instance, that Mary G. Romney was in the Quorum of the Twelve, but he wasn't president of the Twelve, even mm-hmm. though he was senior. His health was so poor that we had an acting member of the Twelve functioning because the senior member of the Twelve, his health couldn't sustain it. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, there has been times where health has been an issue, but you're absolutely right. The quorum of the 12, that is a call for your life. Who is it? Robert D. Hales. He was called to be a mission president, but he hadn't gotten his assignment yet. And so uh, eventually the the assignment was kind of wishy-washy for a minute. And so they, they called him and says, hey, would you mind if we changed your assignment? And he says, hey, I'll go wherever you want to be a mission president. I, I'm, I'm excited to serve. He says, well... <laughs> We're going to change the assignment slightly. You won't be a mission president because I'll serve wherever you want me to serve. He goes, and it's going to be longer than three years. He goes, uh, what do you mean? He's like, we're asking for the balance of your life. Wow. <laughs> you know, like, and that was to be an assistant to the 12. And then later he will serve as a presiding bishop and then, and then the quorum of the 12. But when they extended the call to him, this is, we're asking for the balance of your life. You know, there's, there's no end date to this. And yeah. so, yeah. Well, this is awesome. Any other story or that you want to make sure we, we fit in here before we wrap up or, uh, you know, I, we could ramble on. There's, there's so many just really, really fun, fun stories. But I think, I think I now might be a good, good breaking point, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, sure. Sure. And <laughs> I, well, I, I was going to ask like, and maybe your book is in the works, but I mean, if somebody wants to learn more about some of these yeah. stories and cause you, you know, you know, have a lo- whole list here that some we didn't have time to touch on, but where would you send people if they really want to dig in and learn about this history? Yeah. All these stories that I've told and, and many more are in a book I co-authored with it, with a friend named Patrick Bishop. 
called Apostolic Succession and the Restoration. Oh, cool. Now, that title just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? You know, the original title was the first 100 apostles. Then we had 102. So, <laughs> yeah. but Apostolic Succession and the Restoration is what we've, uh, uh, awesome. all these stories are easy to find. Cool. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, link to that so people can check it out and put it on their their bookshelves for uh, these fun stories from from time to time. So, Kevin, let me just ask you to, the final question: Is as you've had opportunity to really study just this this model, I guess you could say, that a, a restored model or part of the restoration. Not that you know, it's hard to say that God had this envision of how He wanted to work, and He was waiting for everybody to come around. Sometimes maybe these things just came together. But how has that helped your faith and testimony in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah, you know, this restored gospel is a gospel of revelation. This is a gospel of new light, and there's more things to come. If we sat down, if we could sit down maybe 50 years from now and talk about the succession in the presidency, the core of the 12 in the first presidency might look different. But one thing that's going to remain is we are led by priesthood keys. I love how God, throughout this, studying the lives of these individuals has taught me something, that God is the master teacher, that God knows what he's doing as he is teaching individuals to grow into who they need to be to grow into individuals who they never dreamed they could become. And God is doing that with all of us in a very real way. Very few of us are going to serve as president of the church, as counselors, or in the Quorum of the Twelve. And that's not the message. The message is God can use anyone and help them grow into amazing things. God is, uh, is amazing that way. He is the master teacher, the master tutor, as he helps us grow who, into beyond what we can even imagine. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three free sessions of the LGBT Saints Library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.